Ninth Story Studios, giving story a voice. Imagination, of course, can open any door. Turn the key and let terror walk right in. That's Truman Capote. This is Jessica McAvoy, and you're listening to The Wicked Library. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Warning The Wicked Library is a horror fiction podcast created for a mature audience. Our stories contain graphic descriptions of pain, murder, violence, blood, betrayal, and inhumanity. Monsters win, people die, and hope is often shattered. There is also beauty, heart, catharsis, and raw emotion. Fear may be deeply personal, but we all share it. If at any time a story takes you to a place too dark, turn on the lights, press pause, or press stop. And always remember that unlike in the real world, these nightmares and your participation in them are under your control. Hello, welcome to the sixth episode of the Wicked Library's 11th season. I'm your host, Davis Walden. You might be wondering why my voice sounds so familiar, and that's because I was the host of the Wicked Library's 2021 Pride Month episode. My story, The Malwell, was featured in that episode along with the stories of seven incredible writers. You can find more of my stories published by The Wicked Library at thewickedlibrary.com. This episode was written for us by returning Wicked Library alum Lawrence C. Connolly, and this dark tale is told by the author. We'd like to thank all of the listeners who are supporting the show on Patreon. They truly make the show possible and allow for us to make sure that those who contribute to the show don't work for free. If you're not yet supporting the show, you can do that at patreon.com slash wicked library. For as little as $3 a month, you can help us make the show you love and get fun rewards. A lot of hard work and money goes into making the Wicked Library, and we really do rely on this support to help us pay the authors, voice actors, composer, and artists. In addition to knowing that you're part of making this show possible, you can also get fun rewards like ad-free episodes at higher bit rates, access to bonus stories, and at higher levels of support, even more. You can support us at patreon.com slash wicked library. Lawrence C. Connolly will be narrating today's tale with a custom score by Nico Vitesse of We Talk of Dreams. You can find information about everyone involved in today's episode on the Wicked Library website. 
This week's story will pull you back in time to a simpler era, but things become far more complicated for our wayfaring main character. His life, like his clothing, has fallen apart at the seams, and a chain of events is unfolding. I am crouching by a line of train tracks, scraping a 12-inch metal bar over a flat rock. The bar is about the length of my forearm, slightly curved, with a hole drilled through one end. It might have been part of a boxcar latch, or maybe a lever for opening and closing a coal chute. In any event, it is about to serve a higher purpose. I wrap the unsharpened end with a rag to make a firm grip, and tests the edge by swinging it hard against a sumac tree. The trunk splits. The tree topples. Satisfied, I fashion a sling by looping a heavy cord through the hole in the rag-wrapped handle. I slip the sling across my shoulder, let the blade hang at my side, and then put on a trench coat that I found lying by the tracks. The coat smells of someone else's sweat, but it hides the blade, and with the front closed and belted loosely about my waist, I am ready to venture out of hiding. A clay road leads away from the tracks, past the dark mouth of the Shenley Tunnel, and up toward a hard scrabble community of clapboard shanties that locals call the Orchard, possibly in memory of the trees that were cleared to make way for the shacks. The land is barren now, just a low table of hard-packed clay between the homes where some kids are playing stickball. The day is still warm, the kids wear t-shirts and cut-off jeans, their faces gray from the smoky air. I pause beneath a skein of power lines and look around. No one seems to be watching me, except perhaps the stickball pitcher who eyes me warily between throws. He has seen me before, but the coat makes him unsure. I wave, let him know it's just me. He laughs, says something about the crazy bum, and goes back to his game. I step away from the power lines, cross to a shanty marked with the chalk symbol of a cat, simple line drawing, crude but readable. It is on the side of the stoop, down near the ground, partly hidden. The people in the house probably do not know it is there, or maybe, if they do, they know and do not mind. It is a hobo symbol. It means a kind woman lives here. I knock on the door. The woman looks out from the kitchen, frowns at the coat, then tells me to wait. I sit on the stoop, one leg extended so the tip of the blade does not show beneath the coat's ragged hem, back straight so that the sharpened edge does not dig into my side. I know how I must look, a rigid scarecrow in a coat too hot for a September evening, but with it on and covering the blade, I feel safer than I did the last time I left my hiding place in the valley. Even so, as I did while standing beneath the power lines, I scanned the distance for signs of trouble. 
look up along a weedy hill toward the medieval towers of a Catholic school for boys, then eastward toward a townhouse with one high south-facing window. If the air were clear, that window would offer a view all the way to the smoke-spewing mill by the river. I know that for a fact. At least, I think I do. The woman comes to the door, hands me a sandwich wrapped in a sheet of newspaper, and tells me she's sorry. It's all she has today. If my time in exile has taught me one thing, it is that people with little to give are usually the most generous, and this woman is maybe only a step or two away from life on the streets, which is exactly where she and some of those stickball-playing kids will be in a few years, when that school on the hill buys the orchard land to make room for a parking lot and athletic field. Not that anyone but me knows about that here in the autumn of 1952. Plans to expand the campus are still a year away, and the demolition of the shanty village won't begin until sometime in 1954 or 55. Naturally, I keep all that information to myself. What is history to me will seem like prophecy to the locals, and I do not want to attract any more attention than I already have. I thank the woman for the food and leave the way I came, past the stickball game, out beneath the buzzing power lines, and back to the Smoky Valley. It isn't safe to be out of hiding too long. Even in the orchard, the administrators could be watching from a distance, monitoring my moves, planning theirs. I have a camp on the valley's east slope, high up beneath the iron arches of a rusty bridge. My few possessions are stowed in a bindle tucked between some weedy trees and a concrete abutment, covered over with a flat rock that feels a little heavier each time I move it. This life is aging me. I need to get back to my old one, if I can. The bindle is an old bedsheet, doubled up and tied together at the corners. It holds bits of paper that I found lying by the tracks, mostly magazines and pages from newspapers. There is also a box of matches, penknife, some raggedy clothes scavenged from a Goodwill dumpster, a few bruised apples gathered from a wild Macintosh tree in Shenley Park, and a whiskey bottle that I have rinsed out and filled with water. I spread the bedsheet over the ground, take off the trench coat, unsling the blade and set it atop the magazines and papers so they do not blow away, and so that it will be in easy reach if needed. By now, the air is getting dark, turning cool. I use one of the matches to start a fire, then watch the flames as I eat my sandwich. It's just onions, grilled in fat and chilled in an icebox. You would not think such a thing would be any good, but it is, relatively. I finish it quickly, consider keeping the sheet of newspaper it came in, but it's crumpled and greasy from the sandwich. I toss it into the fire, take a fresh page from my pile, and spread it atop the flat rock. I do not need the entire sheet, so I crease it along one side, fold it back and forth a few times, tear off a strip about six inches wide, twenty-two inches long. Then, carefully, I begin shaping it into a hollow sphere. It is a slow process, and there is a good chance the outcome will not succeed any better than my previous attempts, but I have to try. Night falls as I work. Trains come and go, spewing smoke and ash to compound the darkness. And then, just when the sphere is taking shape in my hands, 
I realize someone is coming. I cannot see him clearly. The light of my fire extends only a few feet into the haze. Beyond it, the world is all dimness and fog, cross-hatched with the limbs of skeletal trees, poked through with the glow of a street lamp beyond the tunnel and the fainter oblong of light from the high window of the townhouse beyond the orchard. But I hear him moving, advancing along the tracks, drawing nearer. I set the unfinished sphere on the ground and reach for the blade. He is still coming. I see him now, a stick-figure man advancing through the haze, and he sees me, waving, as if he assumes I am just like him, a brother in rags, though in truth I have no brothers here. He and I are as different as one and zero, but he has no way of knowing that, and my campfire and ratty clothes suggest I am cut from his social fabric, a fellow hobo, adrift in the night. Cautiously, still gripping my scrap metal machete, I study him as he condenses out of the heavy air. Baggy trousers, tweed jacket, shirt that might have been white two or three owners ago, all threadbare and oversized. I cannot see much of his face, just a stubbled chin and ragged mouth. The rest is covered by the visor of a cap pulled low across his eyes, but what I do see puts me at ease. He is small and alone. If he tries anything, I can take him. I set the blade on the ground beside me as he drops his bindle, squats before the fire, leans toward the flames. Looks like you just got here, he says, his voice raw from years of breathing the industrial air. You could say that, I tell him, and leave it at that, hoping he will get warm and move on, leave me alone so I can get back to folding my sphere. Unfortunately, the fire is making him talkative. Mind if I give you some advice? Do I have a choice? He shrugs. I understand. You feel like being alone, and that's me too, but here's the thing. You'd best not stay here too long. You can pass through now and then, maybe camp for a night, bum a meal from the shanty folk, but it's best to keep moving. Know what I'm saying? He glances toward my pile of papers, seems about to ask about them when I notice my unfinished sphere is starting to move vibrating on the ground beside me. For an instant, I hope it might be about to collapse into negative space and take me with it, but then the ground starts shivering too, and I realize the movement has nothing to do with the sphere itself. A rumble rises from deep within the tunnel, growing louder as the rails glow with the light of an approaching train. A moment later, the engine emerges with a blast of smoke and steam. The hobo stands, grabs his bindle, then turns and hurries down the slope. He waves, momentarily silhouetted in the glowing air. Then he's gone as the monster thunders by. The wind of its passing flattens my campfire, scatters my stack of papers, sends my half-finished sphere tumbling along the slope. I guess I will not be leaving tonight. Maybe not ever. Boxcars rumble by. Rhythmic thumps interspersed with screeching wheels. I watch them go, lost in thought until the last one clatters by and the caboose rocks away in the swirling air. It is too dark to start another shape, and I do not want to waste a match on a new fire. So I gather the windblown papers into a pillow, 
then pull the trench coat over me and wrap the bindle sheet across it to make a poor man's sleeping bag. Another night, beneath the rusty arches of the iron bridge, alone in a world where I do not belong, hopeful that another day will bring me a little closer to creating the shape that will send me home, but frightened that the administrators will find me before I do. I dream I am in a room filled with geometric shapes. They are made of colored paper, folded to resemble fist-sized pyramids, cubes, stars, and spheres, or so they seem when viewed from just the right angles. But change your position, and their properties fall out of alignment, lose symmetry, rearrange in the manner of three-dimensional optical illusions to become jumbles of disconnected angles and imploding curves. It's all a matter of perspective, reality determined by the position of the observer. In this dream, I am working to perfect the design of a hollow sphere, shaping it out of a single strip of paper, its surface annotated with numbered lines and arrows that constitute a blueprint of my own design. I have been making a lot of these spheres, as evidenced by a collection of completed ones arranged on a shelf beside the room's south-facing window. Some of them play with the eye better than others, but not one achieves the complete effect I have in mind. Nevertheless, I have not given up. I am nothing if not dedicated, though some might say obsessive, and the sphere I am working on seems to be folding together nicely when I am interrupted by the ping of an incoming message. I turn to find Isha's profile picture looking back at me from the screen of my phone. It is a headshot, cropped out of a larger photo taken shortly after I started seeing her. I seem to recall being in the shot when it was taken, though only a piece of my hand shows in the cropped version, folded on the edge of Isha's shoulder. She has edited out the rest of me. Not that that's a problem. It's her profile picture, not mine. Her accompanying text message is more concerning. It's in all caps, no punctuation, single letters substituting for two of the words. It reads, Where are you? I study it, momentarily perplexed, as if the phone's software has just coughed up some hairball of random code, and then it hits me. It's Friday. I'm supposed to be across town, meeting her at a cafe down the street from her office at Western Psych. I'd promised to arrive by 4.30. I check the time. Damn, it's nearly 5. I grab my phone, try punching in a detailed apology, then delete it and opt for a simpler one-word reply. Sorry. I hit send. She fires back, still all caps. I can almost hear her rage coming through the display. Are you coming? So what do I do? I can say I am on my way and leave now, but it's rush hour. It'll be half past before I get there, and if she's mad now, she'll be livid then. I dial her number, then try composing myself by looking out the room's south-facing window, past the athletic field and parking lot, toward a line of train tracks and the jet-like roar of a natural gas-powered freight. The train races out of the tunnel, and speeds beneath the I-beams of a stainless steel bridge. The air is clear, no smoke. I can see all the way to the river and the stretch of land that was once home to the Jones and Lachlan steel mill. 
Isha takes my call. I apologize. Tell her I was working on a project and lost track of time, but that I'm leaving now and I can be there by 5.30 if she's willing to wait. And all the while, my partly completed sphere seems to be oscillating beside me, expanding and shrinking in the corner of my eye, apparently pulsing so rapidly between positive and negative space that I have to turn and look at it straight on, and when I do, I wake to the darkness of my hiding place above the tracks. Something has roused me, the soft tread of approaching footsteps. The movement is slow, deliberate, approaching with a coordination that makes it clear these are not hobos come to share my camp. I grab my scrap metal machete, strike it against a rock to let them know I am armed, that I have no intention of giving up without a fight. I will kill if necessary, though it won't really be killing. These things advancing in the night aren't human. They aren't even alive in any true sense of the word, but they will bleed and feel pain. It is in their code. One of them calls to me. His voice is soft, reassuring. He tells me not to be afraid. He just wants what's best for me. But then a twig snaps from another direction, and I realize he's simply trying to create a distraction so one of his goons can sneak up on me from behind. I wheel around, swing. The blade cuts empty air. I lose balance, stumble. Mr. Softvoice tries again, tells me to take it easy, be calm, trust him. He's talking louder now, raising his voice above the rumble of an approaching train. The tunnel glows, light fans through the heavy air, and suddenly I see him, Mr. Softvoice standing between me and the brightening tracks, his broad shoulders and heavy arms cutting the light into smoky beams as he lifts a hand, thrusts it toward me. He's holding a pistol or something similar. The muzzle is squared off, no barrel hole, just a pair of plastic flaps folded together like gates. I recognize the weapon, know that the flaps cover an array of metal tines nested in a bed of coiled wire. It's technology that is not supposed to exist in this world of smoke and steam, but these guys are not from here. They're not from anywhere. They're from software. The guy behind me is armed as well, and there is another approaching from farther down the slope, climbing toward me with a sure-footedness that defies gravity. The train whistle screams. Mr. Softvoice tells me to drop the blade. I don't. He pulls the trigger. The gates of his stunner fly open, release their swarm of metal tines, each trailing a thread of coiled wire. I leap away. The swarm misses. Tines fall to the ground as I leap up, swing and drive the blade deep into Mr. Softvoice's neck. Blood gushes, strikes my face. It is hot and salty, convincingly real. He shrieks and goes down. I swing again, take off a piece of his face as another swarm of tines come at me from the side. They strike my shoulder, neck, cheek, just pinpricks at first. Then the current hits me. 300,000 volts, 4.5 milliamps of knockout power. It doesn't register as pain. It's worse. I drop to my knees. The train's roar seems to thunder inside me. The machete glows in my hand. I can't release it. My fingers are fused. I fall forward. The blade stabs the ground. And then, they're on me. Mr. Soft voices thugs covering my head with a sack, binding my hands with a zip tie that rasps tight about my wrists. Then, they grab my shoulders, drag me down the slope as the train rumbles away. They toss me into a vehicle, slam the doors. The sack is still on my head. I cannot see a thing. Can only imagine where they are taking me. Tires spin and then squeal onto rattling cobbles that soon give way to an accelerating silence. 
as if we have transitioned onto smooth asphalt. Or maybe the road no longer exists. Maybe we're sailing through a void, advancing toward another level. I struggle. Mr. Softvoice tells me to calm down. His words are clear, free of the distortion you'd expect from a guy who's lost a piece of his face. I struggle harder. One of the others presses something to my head. I hear a click like the flicking of a light switch, and then... I am lying in a concrete room. Door on one side, barred window on the other. I sit up. The door is a solid slab of blistered metal. No knob, lever, or handle. Just an eye-level slot covered with a rusted plate and the crosshatched reflection of the window. Positioned high up near the ceiling, the window is little more than a slit in the concrete. I can't see much through it while standing on the floor, just what looks like a patch of gray sky. I jump, grab the bars, pull myself up for a better look. Like the middle door, the iron bars are pocked and blistered, anchored in concrete that is cracked with age, though not so far gone as to entertain any hope of clawing my way out. I push one hand through the bars, bend my arm to anchor myself in place as I reach forward with the other to find that the expanse of gray is actually a sheet of translucent glass. I tap it with a fingernail, then wrap it with my fist. There's a world out there. But what world? When and where am I? I need to know. I make a fist with my free hand, align it with the center of the window, and drive it hard against the glass. It is a desperate move, done more out of frustration than any hope that it will work. But it does. The window cracks. I pull my hand free. My knuckles throb from the blow. I flex my fingers, shake the life back into them, then punch again, harder. This time, the glass shatters, shards platter to the floor. The sound echoes in the room, impossibly loud, compounded by voices calling from neighboring cells. If there are guards in this place, they are certainly aware that something is going on. I draw my throbbing fist back from the window, careful not to cut it on the shark fin shards that remain anchored in the concrete frame. Holding on with both hands, I push my face to the bars and peer beyond the shattered glass. Wind blows in, hot and dry. I squint into it, gaze down toward a low table of land and a valley beyond. No buildings, bridges, train tracks, or locomotives. Nothing but a flock of carrion birds circling what looks like the banks of a blackened river in the distance. The birds are not vultures. At least, not like any I have ever seen or heard of. They are flat and leathery, like manta rays spread against the air. The prisoners in the other cells keep shouting as if they know exactly what they've heard. A breaking window, shattering glass, an attempted escape. And now, there are other sounds. Footsteps approaching, pausing outside my door. I drop from the window. Glass crunches beneath my feet, cuts into a pair of papery slippers with cardboard soles. They are not mine. Nothing I'm wearing is. My clothes have all been replaced with some kind of flimsy uniform, white and loose-fitting, no buttons, zippers, or clasps. The slot on the door unlatches, slides open. Someone looks in. His eyes are there one moment, and then gone as the slot closes and the blistered metal groans with the sound of turning locks. The door swings outward. A figure stands backlit in the open frame, 
His face is in shadow, but I can see he is dressed the same as I am. Perhaps he's a trustee, a prisoner recruited to serve as a guard. He carries a club. One step in, and he has me cornered. He raises his hand. I cover my head, try turning away. The blow catches me hard across the shoulder, knocks me to the floor. My hand skids on broken glass. He cocks his arm to swing again, but before he does, I leap up, slash his throat with a shark fin shard, first one way, then the other, back and forth so fast he does not realize what I have done until his blood strikes my face, spatters the wall behind me. He sees it, opens his mouth as if to gasp or scream. He does neither, just trembles and goes down hard. The other prisoners are raging louder now. It's as if they can see what is happening. The trustee twitches at my feet. I am standing in his blood. It seeps through my slippers. I have to step over him to reach the door. He is on his back, face turned toward the light of the hall. I look at him, recoil, then look again to be sure. There is something terrible about his face. It is not the shock in his dead gaze or the silent scream of his open mouth. It is something I sense first as an atavistic tingle along the back of my neck then try to deny as I bend down for a closer look. His features are familiar. I have seen them before, though until now they have always been two-dimensional, flattened in photographs or reversed in mirrors, but here they are, fully rendered and properly aligned, unnerving me as I stumble away. The features are my own. The face is mine. The puddle is still spreading at my feet. I try stepping out of it, slip, and stumble into the hall. It is a long windowless corridor, lit with fluorescent bars, lined with corroded metal doors. Beside each, a clipboard hangs from an angled nail, holding what looks like reports and charts, prisoner profiles with subjects identified by numbers rather than names. The doors are all shaking, thundering with the impact of fists hammering against them. The prisoners seem to know I'm in the hall. They call out, and something in their voices frightens me as much as the face of the dead trustee. I know that sound, know it intimately. I cover my ears. It does not help. The sound is inside me. Each door has an eye-level slot. I unlatch the nearest one, push back the metal cover, look inside at a prisoner raging just inches away, his face a stubbled effigy of my own. I recoil close the slot, stagger away. My slippers are coming apart, deliquescing with the blood of the dead trustee, disintegrating into fibrous smears, elongated scabs that follow me as I move to the next cell. My hand is bleeding, knuckles laid open from smashing the window, palms slashed from the wedge of glass I used to cut the trustee's throat. I do not want to look into any more cells, but I have to know. My fingers smear a second latch, retract the cover, look in at a prisoner even more far gone than his neighbor. He is older, thinner, crouching in the corner with the light from his window shining low across his face, illuminating only his stubbled chin and part of his mouth. He stands, rises into the light from the open slot, matted hair, wild eyes, my eyes. He lunges at the door, then studies me through the slot. Looks like you just got here. This time, I don't bother sliding the plate back into place. I leave the slot open, lurch on to check the prisoner in the next cell, then the next, and the next one after that. 
A few are so far gone they are barely recognizable, but I see the resemblance all the same. They are all me. I come to an intersecting hall, identical to the others. I hurry past another line of cells. Do not pause to look inside. I have seen enough. I move faster, down another corridor, then another, searching for an exit until I reach an intersection where the floor is already streaked with blood, dotted with the remnants of cardboard slippers. I am going in circles. The voices from the cells are louder than ever now, filling the corridor, filling my head. I make a fist with my bleeding hand, try staunching the flow from the gash across my palm, and then I realize that a possible means of escape has been in view all along, hanging beside the doors, the paper records of each prisoner. I pull the nearest clipboard from its angled nail, unclip the report. The text is all close-set type, letters, symbols, and numbers strung together like lines of code, but I am not interested in the report itself, only the paper. I take the top sheet, toss the others aside, and sit cross-legged on the floor. I turn the clipboard over and press the top sheet against it. My hands smear the paper. No matter. Blood should not affect the outcome if the shape is right. I fold the sheet long ways, work the crease back and forth until it tears without shredding. I now have two narrow strips, eleven inches long, four and a quarter inches across. I join them by crimping the ends together. Not ideal for the job, but it will have to do. By now, an alarm is blaring, compounding the din of shrieking voices as I work the strip of paper, giving it the accordion-like crimps that will become the curved surface of a sphere, each fold, the segment of a physical incantation that I hope will transport me to another level of existence. It doesn't matter where, any place will be better than here. My fingers slip, all the flexing and pressing is aggravating the gash in my palm, the paper is getting wet, the crimps won't hold. And yet something is happening. The tumult of screaming voices is receding, cutting out as if the prisoners are ceasing to exist. First the more distant, and then the closer ones, the silence closing in as I work the paper. Lights dim. The alarm falls silent. The paper tears, but still the shouting voices recede. I feel dizzy, feel myself falling, and then... I cannot find the café. I have the directions written on a strip of paper from my apartment, a hastily scrawled note reading, East on Forbes, right on Racine, the Fibonacci Cafe, 233B. But I have been around the block twice and I cannot find the turn I am looking for. I've lived my whole life in this town. Leave it to Isha to pick a place I have never heard of. I should stop and punch the address into my phone, but it is still evening rush. No parking on the main drag, so I steer down a side street, pull over, enter the address and find out that the place I am looking for is just 300 feet straight ahead, on the left. I get out and walk. The street is mostly residential, subdivided homes, a takeout Indian restaurant, and a three-story duplex, boarded on one side, freshly renovated on the other. The cafe's entrance is on the remodeled side, down an alley, Beneath a hand-painted sign showing a swirl of coffee clouds, overprinted with the name Fibonacci. The door is solid wood, no windows to offer a preview of what waits inside, and the place is quiet, too quiet. I suspect it is closed. 
I try the knob to be sure. It turns, and the door swings inward to reveal a short corridor, and another sign, this one directing me down a narrow flight of stairs. I descend toward the smell of fresh coffee wafting from a basement archway, gradually becoming aware of the familiar sounds you'd expect from a cafe. Grinding beans, hissing steam, and the thunk-thunk-thunk of wet grounds being knocked from a filter basket. And there are voices, too, thin but audible, resounding in a post-industrial space of exposed brick and ductwork, accented with track lighting, ceramic tile, and a brass eagle perched atop a chrome and bronze cappuccino machine. A tattooed barista tends bar, scooping steamed milk into a cup for a woman with rainbow hair. Farther in, a gender-fluid couple sits at a bistro table, and, at a booth across from a restroom, Isha looks up from an open laptop. The screen's glow accentuates her high cheeks and flat-lined mouth, the latter drawn into a slash of disapproval, or maybe it's concern. She is a little older than I am, wiser in the ways of life, but that has not saved her from devoting time to our doomed relationship. I slide in across from her, apologize for being late. She just stares, a non-committal look that tells me I need to do better than that. I turn toward the bar, ask if she wants anything. She closes her laptop, tells me she has already had two espressos and a chocolate muffin, so no, she doesn't want anything, just an explanation. Am I all right? What was I doing that was so important that I kept her waiting for nearly an hour? I do not know where to begin. Not that it matters. Whatever I say, she is not going to understand. I'm not even sure I do. At least, not completely. It is the reason I have not yet told her the details of what I have been working on, but it is time that I do that now. I need to level with her, fill her in on my latest obsession. I start by asking if she is familiar with the concept of the simulation hypothesis the theory that reality is nothing more than code running in a super-advanced computer system. She accuses me of changing the subject, but I'm not. I ask her to hear me out, then tell her about some of the implications of the hypothesis that few people have considered. Primarily, the notion that if we and everything in our world are part of a system's running code, then we should have the power to insert sequences of our own design into that system through the manipulation of complex physical structures, optical illusions, and bistable shapes that might make the system behave in ways unintended by its developers. She stops me, tells me to slow down. What do I mean by unintended? Her tone is flat, non-judgmental. I cannot tell if she is humoring me or genuinely interested in what I am saying. But either way, I cannot turn back now. So I give her some biblical examples, stories about proto-hackers who turned wooden staffs into serpents and water into wine, raised the dead in parted seas, conversed with whirlwinds, and ascended into the clouds on beams of light. All those kinds of tricks that would have been easier to pull off back in the early days, when the code was new and more hackable. In those simpler times, a magician or prophet might have worked wonders with spoken codes in the form of incantations, or written ones in the forms of runes and ciphers, but these days, a successful hack needs to interact with the observable world in more complex ways. 
She just stares. I cannot tell if she is buying what I am saying or working up a diagnosis. She is a psychologist after all. But then she asks, what do I mean by more complex? And I realize she has been following what I'm telling her. Maybe she doesn't believe it, but she is listening, at least for now. So, I tell her about the inherent power of four-dimensional shapes, that is, three-dimensional optical illusions that change over time. I explain how I have been folding them out of paper, although it really isn't paper, is it? I mean, it's all code, right? Everything in the world is code, manipulated in just the right way, and you might do all kinds of things. She seems to find that part amusing, asks me if I've been talking to whirlwinds, but I haven't, of course. I laugh, let her know that I appreciate the joke, then explain that I am more interested in the possibility of glimpsing other levels of the simulation, opening windows into the system's archived past, maybe even visiting alternative levels of existence. She frowns, sits back, asks me if that's my excuse, that I could not meet her on time because I was stuck in some alternate reality. I tense. We have arrived at the embarrassing part, the point at which I have to admit that, so far, I do not have anything more to show for my efforts than an apartment full of folded paper shapes. It's just a theory, I tell her. She considers that a moment, then pushes her laptop aside, reaches across the table, takes my hand, and gives me a look that seems to say, But what? if you have been succeeding. I flinch, startled, not so much by the notion that she might be taking me seriously, but by the realization of a possibility I've never fully considered, namely, that my experiments may have been unfolding copies of myself all through the digital multiverse, while my original self remained behind. In other words, the shapes might have been populating the system with duplicates for days, maybe weeks, and all the while I have been sitting in my apartment convinced that nothing is happening. She conveys all this with a single look, a troubled gaze that makes me realize that all those copies of me would ultimately have to be tracked down by the system's administrators, quarantined in some remote space within the platform, and ultimately deleted. That possibility strikes me dumb, but even more unsettling is the knowing look in her eyes. I tremble, break into a sweat. There is only one way to explain how she could have come to that conclusion, reached it even before I fully explained to her the nature of my experiments. Her grip tightens on my hand. I try pulling free. She leans forward so close that her features go out of focus, closer still, until her eyes blur together into a single eye, staring at me, staring into me, reading my thoughts like binary code. I recoil, tug my hand from her grip, stumble from the booth and collide with a bistro table. It crashes to the floor, fills the cafe with a report of cracking tile and clanging iron. The room spins, brightens with panic as Isha takes a stunner from the bench beside her, swings its gated barrel toward me, and steps from the booth. I need to get out of here. But the gender-fluid couple and the rainbow-haired woman are blocking the stairs, while the barista draws down on me with a funnel-nosed rifle, some kind of futuristic blunderbuss with an LED light flashing ready above its trigger. I run, but not to the stairs. I go the other way, 
I hear the click of Isha's trigger, the snap of plastic gates flying open to release their swarm of wired tines. I trip on a chair, fall forward. Her shot goes wide. The tines hiss past me, spark against a cast-iron table as I throw myself against the restroom door and pray it isn't locked. The door flies inward. I slam it behind me, throw the latch. The space is small, barely room for a toilet and sink between the metal door and a high barred window sealed with a pane of translucent glass. No way out, but I cannot stay here. The latched door will not keep me safe for long. The barista certainly has a key. But there is a way out. It's a long shot, but I have to try. I flick the wall switch, the light comes on, a fan hums, I sit on the floor, legs straight, feet thrust against the base of the toilet, I brace against the door, hold it closed with my back and shoulders as I pull a strip of paper from my pocket. One side scrawled with directions to the cafe, the other covered with penciled arrows, numbers and lines, the detailed blueprint for a four-dimensional sphere. The door unlocks, then trembles as Isha and the others push against it from outside. I hold it closed, and then Isha and her posse back off. Try a different approach. One of them calls to me. The tone is soft, reassuring. It tells me not to be afraid. It just wants what's best for me. I tune it out, focus on the paper. The sphere takes shape, but everything else remains as before. The fan hums, the light above the sink glows, and it occurs to me that maybe the shape has already done its work, transported a copy of me to safety while I, the original me, remains behind, trapped in the restroom. Or maybe it is all a delusion, and Isha and her colleagues are merely trying to help a patient she has been treating unsuccessfully for months. But that's crazy, right? I keep folding Tune out the coaxing voices as the sphere grows in my hand, rising toward me one moment, falling away the next, its curved sides seeming to vacillate between positive and negative space, drawing me in until... I am falling, somersaulting down a slope to land on a gravel berm. I lie a moment, dazed, disoriented as I stare up at a smoky sky. The air reeks of sulfur. The ground is wet. It's cold. No longer the summer I left behind. I sit up, shiver in my short sleeves and light jacket, look around at a world that is at once strange and familiar. Above me, a rusted iron bridge echoes with heavy trucks and rattling streetcars. To my right, two sets of twin rails curve into a heavy haze, while to my left, the black mouth of a stone tunnel swallows the night. I am down the street from my apartment, that is where I am. But the bigger question is, when am I? The cold wind reeks of the industrial stink that my grandfather used to talk about, the hydrocarbon breath of a mill by the river that he endured when he was a boy. That was in the 1950s, when he was growing up in the city where I now have an apartment overlooking the valley. No, correction, not now. This is not the now I came from a fact that becomes increasingly evident as I follow a gravel road past the tunnel to emerge beneath a skein of power lines. I can just make out lights from a gaggle of clapboard homes to my left. Straight ahead, on a hill beside a pair of medieval towers, is the subdivided townhouse where I have been renting a third-floor apartment since taking an adjunct position at CMU. High up, on the building's south-facing wall, 
A lighted window forms a glowing wedge in the haze. I cannot see into the room. But I know I am not in there, will not be for a very long time. I consider climbing the hill for a closer look, but I'm suddenly aware of the gaze of scanning eyes. Not from the shanty village or the lighted window, but from somewhere beyond. Even here, the administrators are watching. I will need to be careful. Learn to fight. Kill if necessary. Though perhaps it won't really be killing. I turn and head back to the valley, along the tracks lined with 20th century litter. No plastic. Lots of glass, metal, and paper. An empty whiskey bottle lies by the rails. I pick it up, put it in my pocket to use as a canteen, and there's a long metal bar, maybe part of a boxcar latch. That might be useful too, but the things I really need are in greater abundance. I see them as I turn in place, survey the valley, and find that it is littered with paper. I may be going home after all. Thank you for listening to Episode 6 of Season 11. Today's author was Lawrence C. Connolly with his story, Unfolding. Today's story was told by the author. To find out more about today's author, please visit thewickedlibrary.com and check out his bio page. You can find more of my work by going to thewickedlibrary.com or discover magical creatures in my podcast, The Viridian Wild, at theviridianwild.com. You can find me on all social media platforms at, at IV and my podcast at, at theviridianwild. Our lead editor and executive producer is Scarlett R. Algy. Our resident composer and executive producer is Nico Vitese of We Talk of Dreams. Artwork for today's episode was created by Jeanette Andromeda, our art director and executive producer. Our showrunner and producer is Daniel Foytek. The Wicked Library is created by Ninth Story Studios. All rights reserved. <laughs>